I'm reading from the English Standard Version, Matthew chapter 5. We'll read verses 1 through 12 together, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Father, we ask this morning that you would give your servant the strength and clarity to say what needs to be said this morning. We thank you for your holy word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we conclude the study in the Beatitudes this morning, as part of our larger study of the Sermon on the Mount, which fits in our larger study of the Gospel according to Matthew, just a reminder to set the context We've pointed out several parallels and in, in ways that Matthew in the first four chapters of his gospel goes at great lengths to show Jesus Christ, the incarnate God, identifying with the people that he came to save. Be it sinners in that opening genealogy or Israel, the nation, as we've seen Jesus in so many ways through his infancy and childhood and into adulthood and the beginning of his public ministry, going where Israel went, particularly in conjunction parallel to the Exodus itself, and, and culminating to a large degree. You remember when Israel came out of Egypt after they passed through the waters, as Jesus passed through the waters, 40 years in the wilderness, 40 years in the wilderness. There was also the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, which is parallel in John's order, his literary order here to Jesus's giving of the, quote, law from Mount Sinai. And I was thinking about the parallels there, too. If you remember, if you go back to the Ten Commandments, it's very important, very significant, that when the Ten Commandments are given, they are given with the preface, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So they, the Ten Commandments themselves begin with a pronouncement, first and foremost, of who loved who first. Who extended grace to who first? It was God, out of his mercy, out of his undeserved kindness, who delivered Israel out of the land of Egypt. This great act of salvation, which foreshadows Jesus's great act of deliverance from the bondage of, uh, not from the bondage of Egypt, but the bondage of slavery. This is what the Lord has done for you. I am the Lord. This is who I am. This is what I've done for you. As a result of this, 
This is what my people are to look like. This is what life in my kingdom is to look like. The, the, the commandments don't flow from a position of if you do this first, then God will bless you. The commandments flow from the exact opposite. God has blessed you, delivered you from the land of Egypt. This is what should flow out of that blessing of grace and mercy and love. Same thing in the, the Beatitudes. You'll notice each Beatitude, very important, very par- in a parallel way, begins with this pronouncement, you're blessed. You're blessed, 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 blessed. This is what God has done for you. This is the grace and the mercy that God has done for you. This is the proactive party who initiates your salvation. This is what he's done for you. I had a good friend point out to me recently, tongue in cheek. Notice they are B-attitudes. They're not do attitudes. I think that's helpful. They're be attitudes. The the idea being this is fruit that flows from a regenerated root. God, if he has regenerated you by the work of his Holy Spirit, and we know that if we have repented of our sins and turned to the Lord Jesus Christ alone for our salvation, you are now a citizen of the kingdom. It is a, a kingdom that is not of this world. And then flowing from that is this list of descriptors that will mark those citizens who are not of this world. And it should not surprise us, although it is jarring, that the last one, the climax of the Beatitudes, takes us right back to where we started. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those, verse 10, who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And you come right off the hills of the seventh beatitude, peacemaking. You go from peacemaking to persecution. From the work of reconciliation, we looked at that last week, blessed are the peacemakers, to those who refuse to live at peace with us. And that's in keeping with this idea that peacemaking is not the same as peace achieving. Peacemaking is not always the same as peace achieving. I hope that sets somebody here free today. Paul is very clear. And as far as it is up to you, as much as it depends on you, I'm trying to connect too. As much as it depends on you, be at peace. But, but the very next, this very last beatitude presses the point that we can take all the initiative in the world to be peacemakers. We can pray for peace. We can pursue peace. We can greet our enemy. We can pray for our persecutor. But even with all of that, there are going to be instances in life, if you're a true disciple of Christ, where some are going to mock you, some are going to oppose you, some are going to slander you. And it shouldn't surprise us, now having spent some time with his Beatitudes, that those who are blessed, once again, are not the ones the world would expect. He doesn't say, blessed are the powerful, blessed are the popular, blessed are the perfectly obedient. It is blessed are those who are oppressed and ridiculed and persecuted. Now, first this morning, I want to focus on why these persecutions come, because I think this is very important. 
He's not making a blanket statement that all people who are persecuted are blessed. He does not just say, blessed are the persecuted, period. He puts a very important qualifier on it. And just like he's done in a couple of these uh, Beatitudes, the qualifier is key. So, for example, in the first one, blessed are the poor. It's not just blessed are the physically poor, the monetarily poor. It's the poor in spirit. It's, it's blessed those who are spiritually impoverished. Same thing in verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. He's not talking about physical hunger and thirst there. Very important qualifier. It's those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Same thing in our beatitude this morning. Blessed are those who are persecuted. And here's a very important qualifier. Persecuted for righteousness' sake. Righteousness sake. This is not just sanctifying any old kind of persecution. He's not saying that we're blessed if we suffer for unrighteousness. He's not saying that if you go out and make poor decisions, so for example, if you cheat and steal and lie and you're persecuted for that, you're prosecuted for that, He's not saying there's a blessing in that. If you cheat and you suffer the consequences, that's just the built-in fabric of creation. Sin has consequences. Breaking the law has consequences. Cheating has consequences. And sometimes those consequences last for years. That's, that's not suffering for righteousness sake. And we do that kind of thing all the time. We might not commit some kind of felony or grand larceny. Check out the help section in your ultimate ears app. We're good. We're good. We say things we shouldn't do all the time. We we do things we shouldn't do all the time. We we suffer consequences when we do that. We're fallen. That's just part of life in this world. You don't get a special blessing for that. In fact, if you turn with me to 1 Peter, Peter offers us the perfect commentary on this passage. You'll keep in mind, Peter is right there at the Sermon on the Mount. He's on the Mount. He's listening to these Beatitudes. He knows them well. I'm sure he heard them a hundred times in the roughly three-year public ministry of Jesus as he traveled with him and listened to his teaching. The time on the Sermon on the Mount being one occasion. If you turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter quotes this beatitude, paraphrases it a couple of times in his letter of 1 Peter. 1 Peter 3.14. He says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Okay, that, that's another way of just quoting Jesus' beatitude. And then if you turn to chapter 4, he expounds on this a little bit, beginning in verse 12. Verse 12, 1 Peter 4, he quotes it again. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. 
but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, not just any sufferings, but Christ's sufferings for righteousness' sake, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, another very important qualifier for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But here's some more additional commentary. This is the flip side. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Okay, you see the the contrast there. That's suffering for unrighteousness sake. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. You can't, in other words, You can't go out and murder someone, suffer the consequences, and then play the martyr. Oh, well, I'm suffering for righteousness sake. (laughs) You can't go out and play the part of a thief, steal something, get caught, and say, oh, I'm suffering the part of a martyr for righteousness sake. That's suffering for unrighteousness. You can't go out, Peter gives a third example, you can't go out and play the part of a meddler and say, I'm suffering for righteousness sake. Meddlers will suffer. Yeah, if you go out and stick your finger in somebody's ear and you weren't asked to do it. You're probably going to suffer the consequences. That's not suffering for righteousness sake. That, that's suffering for self-righteousness sake. What Peter calls a troublesome meddler, that's, that's the busybody who, who rushes in and makes all kinds of blank, blanket des- declarations and sticks her finger in somebody's business where it doesn't belong and looks down their long pointy nose and says, you know, you're da 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 That's suffering for self-righteousness' sake. That's stirring up trouble. You can't go in a, in a tactless, insensitive just pronouncing judgments in places that you don't get getting out of your lane. That's not being a peacemaker. Pronouncing judgments on people you don't know them, you don't know about them, and you don't know their situation and expect to suffer and call it righteous suffering. That's not suffering for righteousness. That's just being offensive. That's being a busybody. That's being a meddler. If you're a busybody meddler, people are going to get mad at you and you don't get spiritual credit for that. I vividly remember when I was in school at Auburn going by the eagle's nest. Some of you remember the eagle's nest. And you had the street preachers out there. It's a very common thing. And these guys delighted in getting in the face, grown men getting in the face of teenage girls, calling them all kinds of names, telling them they're going to hell for the way that they're dressed, shouting at them, and you know, rational folks just dismiss it. But then they turn around and these same guys are writing editorials in the Plainsman, the student newspaper, and they're claiming to be martyrs for the Christian faith because their message was rejected. Well, that's ridiculous. That is self-generated suffering. You don't, you don't get credit for bucking the system and just going out and getting in people's faces and calling them names. 
That is not what Jesus is talking about. That's exactly what Peter is warning against here. I think the idea clearly is that true righteousness flows out of a relationship with Jesus Christ. And let me show you how, I, how that plays out. Look back at our passage in Matthew 5. This is the only beatitude. We're, we're on the eighth beatitude, number 10. And we know this is the last one for a couple of reasons. It, it, it's got this nice literary device where it rounds it out with bookends. Theirs is the kingdom it starts with. Theirs is the kingdom it ends with. Um, it, it, the first blessing is present tense. The last blessing is present tense. But then verse 11, Jesus gives us a little commentary on this last beatitude. He expounds upon it a little bit. This is also where he goes from the third person to the second person. So there's a lot of literary devices showing us that this is, this is not a ninth beatitude, but it's a commentary on the eighth beatitude. And you can clearly see the relationship. Verse 11, he says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Look, that, that relationship with Christ, you're doing it on my account. You're doing it, Peter said, for the sake of Christ. You're doing it for righteousness sake. The, the motivation behind it means everything. The, the key to this is the motivation behind it. And I am convinced that if you are a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're walking with him, you're following after him, you're seeking to obey his clear commandments, you're walking as one of those who is blessed, you're walking in meekness and humility and mercy and love, you are going to stand out in this world. I can tell you this with certainty. The world does not like meekness. The world does not like humility. The world does not like mercy. The world does not like peace. If you don't believe that, pick up a newspaper, step out of the house, go mingle and mix, and you'll see that immediately. The, the things that, that Christ is describing here, I think in so many ways, is just the absolute 180 degree opposite of what the world values and if you are a citizen of the kingdom and if you're in Christ, the root is going to produce fruit and that fruit is going to be noticed. And the world at times is going to find it humorous and they're going to poke fun. That's a light form of persecution. But at other times, if you're meek and humble and merciful and loving, the world is going to find it annoying. And that's another level of persecution. But then in other times, the world is going to find it downright infuriating. And they're going to get mad. And they're going to call you names. 
and they're going to shun you and discriminate against you, and they're going to put restrictions on you. There's several ministries in the world today that keep stats annually on the persecuted church. Um, the Open Doors World Watch List is an annual one that comes out. Voice of the Martyrs, another big ministry that keeps up with these kind of statistics. What we've seen in recent years in, in all of these organizations that keep such stats is a sharp increase globally of the persecution of Christians. If you just name the name of Jesus Christ and seek to follow after him, most recently, some of the stats I've seen, 60% of Christians in the world today live in countries with significant restrictions. And they define significant restrictions as this. It's, it, you'll get the gist of it. Pressure, discrimination, opposition, disinformation, injustice, mistrust, marginalization, oppression, intolerance, infringement, violation, hostilities, harassment, abuse, violence, ethnic cleansing, genocide. And then they note this list is not exhaustive. 60%. 60%. Somewhere around 16% of Christians in the world today suffer severe interference and harassment by the state. Friends, popular culture, our world, is hostile to the Christian faith. We see it in our own society. I thank God that we can worship this morning. This, you, you, some, some of you don't know how blessed we are to be able to gather here Sunday after Sunday without any reasonable fear of persecution. I pray that that continues to be the case for my generation. I really pray that continues to be the case for my daughters, for their children, I don't know what's next. Nobody does. But I do know this, based on the words of Jesus, based on the words of Peter, if you go out there and you really proclaim and live the message that there is one true Savior, you are going to be ridiculed. You're going to be pressured to conform you're going to be denied a promotion or you're going to be rejected by a family member. These things are real. And I really get the sense that we, in the year 2024, are really starting to feel that in a way that perhaps we haven't before. And I think it's going to get more real. What does Jesus say to do? What, what do we do under persecution? Well, look at verse 12. This is a shocking piece of counsel. Shocking. He says in verse 12, when all this happens to you, all kinds of evil against you, falsely, persecute, reviled, oppressed, rejoice and be glad. Rejoice and be glad. What can possibly justify joy and gladness when you're being ridiculed, mocked, hated, tortured, killed, well, he tells us, he says, your reward is great in heaven. Your reward is great in heaven. 
Now, he doesn't give much more detail than that. We had a good conversation this past week at our men's study about um, this idea of rewards and level of rewards in heaven. The Bible holds it out there. Um, it, it doesn't give much detail. It, the Bible is very clear. This has nothing to do with a works righteousness. But there does seem to be some notion that those who are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, who are faithful to Christ in this life, and particularly those who suffer persecution for righteousness' sake, will be compensated infinite fold for every pain that you suffer in this life. I think the idea is that this is not meritorious. You don't earn it. But you can rejoice in your sufferings here if you know in your heart of hearts that there is a great eternal reward that lies ahead. I I think that is the Christian perspective on eternity that has real legs and feet on the ground this side of the grave. What you endure here will be rewarded infinite fold in eternity. That is the message of Jesus Christ. And I think related to that is this idea, friends, that we have to train ourselves. And you do, you do this by spending time in the Word of God. You do this by coming to church. You do this by spending time with brothers and sisters in the Lord. We have to train ourselves to think that the reward in heaven is worth more than the reward in this world. I mean, doesn't that sum up so much of the Christian ethic? That, that there is something better than what this world has to offer. That's true of the good things in this world. I love the good things in this world. Enjoy it. Just keep it in perspective. It's temporal. It's passing. It's fleeting. It's not all there is. It doesn't ultimately satisfy but it's also true of the difficult things in this world. The persecutions for righteousness' sake, they pale in comparison to something greater that lies ahead. And he mentions here particularly, you're in good company. Look at the end of verse 12. If you're persecuted for righteousness' sake, take heart, rejoice, be glad, because number one, your reward is in heaven. And number two, If they're persecuting you, keep in mind, they persecuted the prophets too. They persecuted the prophets who went before. The whole Old Testament's about that. Much of the New Testament's about that. Prophets and apostles being persecuted. I think Jesus is telling us here, this is another motivator. Number one, you've got a greater treasure laid up for you in heaven. Keep that in mind. But number two, you're in good company. They did this to the prophets. They did this to the apostles. They're doing it to Christians around the world today. They've done it throughout the history of the church. That great cloud of witnesses, Hebrews 11. I love that passage. We don't turn to it, but in Hebrews 11, you're familiar that it's the Colosseum metaphor. This idea of of the countless martyrs that have gone before us. They're in heaven. They're looking down. They're looking at us as the church today, and they're cheering for us. They're saying, you're on our side. You're on our team. If they're persecuting you, you're on the right side of history. And that confirms that we are in Jesus Christ. There is going to be in this world times 
When it looks like we are losing it all. I get that. It's so easy to give in to despair. It's so easy to look at what's going on in the world today and come to the false conclusion that we're losing everything. And Jesus says, take heart. Because it may appear that you're losing it all. But in reality, ours is the kingdom. Ours is the kingdom of heaven. Father, we thank you for your words of encouragement to your people today. Lord, we thank you that by your grace, you have called us into the kingdom and we know the ending that Jesus will reign forever and ever. Father, help us to keep that in mind when we as the righteous often get trampled in this world and it appears the wicked go unpunished. But that day is coming when you will settle accounts. We pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.